And this is what James is dealing with in our passage this morning as we look together at verses 19 and 20. These are uh, the closing words of his practical letter. It may seem like a rather abrupt way to end, but in fact it isn't. And I will say something about that. Now please remember that we have been considering together what people should do under certain circumstances when people are in serious sickness and illness, perhaps even close to death, they are to call for the elders of the church to come and to pray for them. And when brethren may be sick because of sin, sin against one another, they are to call those against whom they have sinned and confess their sins to one another and in that context to pray for healing. In both of those cases, there is a calling for help. But James is going to submit to us this morning the sad case of souls who are not calling for help, but who desperately need it. The case of those for whom there should be a search and rescue mission. And I want us to consider that together this morning under two very simple headings. Let me name them after I've read the passage. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back or her back, let him, that is that someone who brought him or her back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his or her wandering will save his or her soul from death and will, you have to understand, be the instrument to cover a multitude of sins. Now, as we look at these two verses, I simply want you to notice with me a fearful danger of which we should be aware. All of us. All of us. And I want us to notice as well a faithful duty to which all of us should be alert. There's my simple outline. There's a danger and there's a duty. The danger is fearful and it's something we should be aware of. The duty is one of faithfulness of which we should be alert. Now, I said that it seems like a rather abrupt way to end the letter. There's no conclusion, seemingly. There's no uh, parting remark. And now may God bless you until by His kind providence we see each other again face to face. Nothing of the kind. No benediction at the end. But it really isn't as abrupt and disconnected as we might think. Because from the very beginning, James has been concerned that people within the visible church scattered throughout the dispersia, that people in the church should have and possess a true, saving, living, working, life-transforming, valuable faith. We've seen that over and over and over. That's the burden of his heart. 
And he concludes with that burden because, you see, to wander away from the truth, which we have just read, whether we wander away intellectually or morally or both ways, may demonstrate that our faith, in fact, is not saving. It is not valuable. It is not real, but bogus, spurious, and unsaving. And that's something James is so concerned about. And the issue of whether or not our faith is saving with regard to wandering away from the truth can only be determined by recovery. Search and recovery. The reclamation. The restoration of the wayward brother or sister. That's the burden of these last two letters that uh, James, or these last two verses that James gives us. Now, I just want you to know real quickly um, how he uh, introduces his conclusion. If indeed this is the conclusion, it has to be the conclusion. They're the last two verses, and they're sort of a separate subject. How does he introduce his conclusion? Very encouragingly, with his familiar words, my brothers. If you study the epistle carefully, you'll find that he used that expression um, close to 20 times. I'm not sure if it's 19 or 18, but it's in that, that neighborhood. That many times he speaks to his... Now, is that just sort of a tactful way? Well, I'm going to come to an end. I guess I'll say something that seems a little endearing. And he's just uh, throwing those words out meaningless. No. James wants to convey again his genuine and deep and true affection for his readers. And he wants to convey to them that he is, in a sense, equal to them, not superior to them. In one sense, we know that he is because God has inspired him to write a letter. But in another sense, in a fundamental sense, James wants to remind his readers, I am united with you. I am one of you. I am like you. We all stand on level ground with regard to the need for grace and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. I am your brother. He doesn't just write them and say brothers, because that could imply they are brothers and sisters just merely among themselves. He says, my brothers. And that's encouraging. And that's the way we as your pastors want to approach you. And we trust that's the way whenever you need to approach someone else in this assembly, um, that you will be mindful. This is my brother. This is my sister. I am united to them. I am joined to them. So it's not just a meaningless expression. It's a, it's a genuine token of endearment. Now then, let's look at this, this teaching under the two headings. I suggested the first one is a fearful danger of which we should be aware. What is the danger? Notice the words again. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. That's the danger. The danger is for a professed Christian, and I underscore the word professed, and among professing Christians, there are the genuine and there are the deceived. But this is a, 
A professed Christian, apparently, we conclude that because he says, if anyone among you, anyone who's a part of your community, of those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's identifying the danger, the fearful danger of someone who professes to be a Christian. They may be genuinely a Christian. Or they may not be genuinely a Christian. That's not the issue for us to determine just now. But the danger is that such a person should wander from among the truth or from, from the truth itself. Now, obviously, I need to say something about the word truth. How wrong it would be to proceed without explaining the significance of this word. And I want to make a simple observation as I seek to comment on the significance of the word. And the observation is this. James obviously assumes that there is such a thing as truth. How can you wander from something that doesn't exist? And you say, why are you pointing that out? Because, as some of you know better than others, we live in an age which has come under the dominant influence of a philosophy sometimes just called post-modernism. It's something that has come along even after modernism. It's after modernism. And post-modernism holds tenaciously to this tenet. There is no such thing as truth. And it's arrogant and authoritative and divisive and controlling to tell people that there is such a thing as truth. There may be truth in quotation marks, truth for you, truth for someone else, but it cannot be truth in the absolute sense of the term. And postmodernism, of course, I think, is a, a, a philosophy which contains all the seeds of self-destruction within it, because then why talk? Why write? Why discuss? Why teach? Why write books on the fact that there is no truth? And, of course, we humorously say to our postmodernist uh, foolish friends, oh, yes, there is at least one truth, isn't there? There's the truth that there is no truth. Um, you say there is no truth. That is a self-refuting statement. And I don't mean to be too technical. That just means that you can't say that. That's nonsensible because the moment you say there's no truth, then it means what you just said isn't true. It's self-refuting. And it's hard for us to believe that we live in a world that would uh, be willing to embrace such a foolish, ridiculous idea. It reminds me of a time when I was sitting in Dr. Moeller's office, and I'm not sure if I was with Pastor Sam on that occasion. I think I was, when he was telling us about um, the Reformation at Southern Seminary and how... Um, some of the professors, one in particular, I think he taught philosophy and so forth, was explaining all that to Dr. Moeller, that, uh, that there is no such thing as truth. And he said, you know, you're really a hypocrite. Because when you go to the bank and you look at the figures, you believe they're right or they're wrong. They can't be both. He said, you're a hypocrite. And later when Dr. Moeller told him, uh, he said, you know, you can't fire us. Um, because that abstract of principles could mean any number of things. And Al Mohler said, well, you are fired. He just said that. He said, what? You're fired. 
you can't do that because we have a contract. Oh, he said that contract is entirely open to interpretation. It can mean anything. (laughs) To me, it means you're gone. And uh, it was interesting. He was sharp enough to turn that on a postmodernist thinker. But dear people, there is such a thing as truth. And James says you can wander from it. He assumes truth. Now, we need to know what he means and what the Bible means by truth. So I'm just going to say a little something about that. We know that truth exists because God is truth and God exists. God the Father is truth. God the Son is truth. God the Holy Spirit is truth. You remember Jesus said on one occasion, I am the way, the truth, not a truth, the truth and the life. And this God who is truth has spoken. He's spoken in creation, and we call that general revelation. He's spoken in scriptures, and we call that special revelation. And he has spoken in such a way as to secure the infallibility of his revelation. And it also is truth. And on another occasion, Jesus said to disciples, If you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And we know... Because this book is truth, what it says about it being truth. And it says that it is supernaturally inspired and infallible and authoritative. Young people, boys and girls, there is not a single tiny minute error in the Bible. There are some things hard to understand. There are no errors because a God of absolute perfect truth gave us his word. And James himself talks about this truth and how critical it is even in our conversion. Could I just take you back for one moment to chapter 1 and verse 18 and please notice the sovereign grace of God in verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, of his own will, God's own will, He's sovereign. It isn't about our will. It's about His will. Of His own will, He brought us forth. That is, He caused us to be born and to come into spiritual existence by the word of truth. And I'm sure He's talking about the gospel and about the word of God which contains the gospel. So this is what James is talking about when he's talking about truth. He who is truth has told us in his word about truth. He's told us about the truthfulness of himself, his person, his essence, and he's told us about the truthfulness of his word. And so the word of God, which is truth, becomes to us who are believers more than something merely to understand or something merely to believe. And I want to remind you this morning that because it is truth and truth from God, it is something that we must love, something that we must obey, and something that we must do. I say that again? The truth of God's Word isn't merely something to understand and believe. We must understand it. We must believe it, but we must also love it, and we must obey it, and we must do it. I'm just going to show you all kinds of scriptures to demonstrate that. I'm just going to turn you to one, 
because I think it's helpful just to think in terms of doing the truth. Would you turn to John chapter 3 and verse 21, the Gospel of John chapter 3 and verse 21. John 3, verse 21, Jesus says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Jesus speaks of doing the truth. Now, why am I laboring this point? Because it has everything to do with what it means to wander from the truth. Wandering from the truth isn't just changing your thinking and say, you know, I no longer agree with what the Bible says about that. It is that. It it starts there. Usually it starts there. Often it starts. But it's more than that. To wander away from the truth, first of all, intellectually, theologically, doctrinally, soon inevitably becomes a wandering away from the doing of the truth, the living by the truth. That's what we have to understand. Wandering from the truth is both doctrinal and ethical or behavioral. Now, let me just explain for a second how that can happen. Sometimes people wander away from the truth doctrinally because they have first wandered away from the truth morally and behaviorally. And then they decide, you know what? I, um, I'm a contradiction to what I say I believe. I better quit believing what I say I believe because that, that's a glaring inconsistency. And so they say, you know, I used to believe that about, I'll just use an example, homosexuality. But I don't believe that anymore. I used to believe what God said about marriage and divorce. I really don't believe that. I think that was a a cultural thing. I, I used to believe what the Apostle Paul taught about headship in the home and submission on the part of wives. But you know, I, I find myself now to be an egalitarian. I really think that they're equal in every respect. And um, I just don't believe that anymore. Many, many times we change our thinking because our behavior has led us in a direction that needs that kind of a justification. But the other thing happens here, people. Sometimes what happens is our minds are gotten to through uh, some kind of influence under which we have been perhaps at the university and ideas are put in our head and, and we're shaken perhaps in our faith and our thinking and we question fundamental truths taught in the Word of God. And the first thing we see is an outworking of it in our lifestyle. So which comes first? It depends. But when James talks to us about if anyone wanders from the truth, he's probably talking about both things, doctrinally and behaviorally, theologically and ethically. And so even Paul speaks about Hymenaeus and Philetus departing from the truth. Paul speaks about Demas has forsaken me. Why did Demas forsake Paul? Because he loved this present world. He had an ethical, moral, 
behavioral problem. But what about Alexander, the coppersmith? Paul tells us that he was opposing the truth that Paul was teaching. And so both of these things can happen. That's what I believe James is talking about when he says that uh, there are those among you, perhaps, who will wander away from the truth. And I introduce this whole section by saying that the, the fearful danger. So I want to say to you, why is it so dangerous? Well, it's dangerous because of what it leads to. It's also dangerous because of how it works. It's very subtle. It's very deceptive. What is the danger? What's, the, what's at stake? Look at the text. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back the sinner... Oh, ooh, there, there's a word. Now, that, that sort of puts some perspective on wandering from the truth. Hmm... He's saying that the person who wanders from the truth is a sinner. And then he goes on to say that whoever brings back the sinner from his wandering will save his soul, that is the soul of the sinner, from his wandering. He will save his soul from death. Whoa! This is serious. This is dangerous. Oh, James says, I'm not done. Because he will also save him from a multitude of sins which must be covered. Because if they're not covered, you will die. And he's talking here, I believe, about spiritual death, about separation from God, but what we would call the second death, especially in the day of judgment. When that day comes, if, if our sins are not all covered by the blood of Christ, we will die. We will be told to depart. And so a person who wanders away from the truth morally must be recovered. Now some of you are thinking theologically, so what is he saying? Is he saying a Christian can really do this? So I'm just going to quickly insert something to satisfy your thinking. I trust for a moment so that I can proceed. No, I don't believe a true Christian will wander away hopelessly and not be recovered. I believe that the grace that God Himself designed to be part of the covenant includes the grace of recovery. Pastor Rich was praying about some of those things this morning in his pastoral prayer. All of the blessings of the new covenant purchased by Christ are made effective in the lives of those who experience, including recovering from backslidings. But at the same time, we must recover. We must repent in order to prove that we are genuinely Christians. Well, what do you believe, Pastor Ted, that the, that the true saint will persevere or that the true saint must persevere? I believe both. We must persevere to the end, but we shall persevere to the end. And the man who wanders away from the truth and never comes back hasn't fallen from saving grace. He's proven that he wasn't truly converted to begin with. But the fact of the matter is, those who wander from the truth must be brought back. Because if they are not brought back, they are sinners. 
and they have a multitude of sins that are left uncovered and they will die. That's why it's so dangerous. And all of us, most of us are professing Christians. Can a Christian wander from the truth? Of course a Christian can wander from the truth. Can a Christian wander from the truth and truly apostatize and never recover? Of course not. But a Christian can wander from the truth. And a Christian has to be recovered by, the, by grace. So I'm, I'm more comfortable with just saying this, this is a professing Christian. Is he genuinely converted or not? Time will tell. But this much I know. That there is such a thing as wandering from the truth, intellectually and behaviorally. And any person who falls into that fearful state needs to be brought back. Because he or she is a sinner. And they're flirting with death. And they will find, if they're not recovered, that in the day of judgment they have a multitude of sins that have not been covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one reason. And the other reason why it's so dangerous is because um, wandering is a very subtle thing. You don't also use the word wander. Have you ever been going somewhere and accidentally sort of, you didn't intend to get lost, but because of carelessness, you wandered off the path. Get Pastor Keith to tell you about the time in Cuba when he went for a walk at nighttime and the sun was going down and he got hopelessly lost in an, in an area of Havana, I think. It was one of those cities that was just fearful for him. And he was All the time he was actually quite near his original place of departure. It doesn't take a lot of work to wander and it's pretty easy. Listen to me. It's pretty easy to wander from the truth. And one of the reasons it's easy to wander from the truth is because of what's working in our souls, even the souls of true believers, until we're made perfect. And you know what it is? It's passions, sinful passions, we would call it remaining sin. The Apostle Paul opens up the meaning of that dynamic for us in his epistle to the Romans. But just go back to chapter 1 again and notice verses 14 and 15. Actually, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. No, never say that. Never say that. Let me tell you what's really happening, says James. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's why this is so dangerous. It's subtly working in us. And we have these passions because of remaining sin that must be ruled over. Or, we may subtly find ourselves wandering from the truth, first in our heads and then in our lives. And that's so dangerous. Just a quote from Blanchard and then <clears throat> I move on to my second point. 
he put this, I think, quite well. He says, we must... Um, it, it, here's the way he puts it. He says, it, it helps us to capture the subtlety of the danger. The picture here is not of a sudden, impulsive U-turn, an impetuous, violent rebellion, a headlong rush into sin. James is speaking of a wandering, an almost gentle straying, a subtle loosing or loosening of one's doctrinal or moral moorings. It is not a sudden, violent jerk of the helm. It is a slow drifting with the tide. Backsliding rarely begins with a loud bang. It rarely begins with an outrageous, scandalous sin. Rarely. Sometimes when you have an outlandish, scandalous sin that happens suddenly, the devil says, you might as well keep sinning. Because look, you're going to have to repent anyway. But that's not usually the way. It's subtle. It's gradual. So, there's the fearful danger. Very quickly, let us notice the faithful duty to which we should be alert. What is it that we're supposed to do as Christians? It's implied. It's, it doesn't come in the form of an imperative, but it's implied there, isn't it? Look again at these verses. If someone wanders from the truth, anyone, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his want save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What, what is the responsibility of the loving believer in Heritage Baptist Church if you have reason to believe that someone dear to you is wandering from the truth? In the words of James, what is it that you ought to try to do? The literal words are to bring him back. Bring her back. You want to see his or her soul saved from death because you don't know for sure that they're going to persevere, that God is going to give them persevering grace. You just know that they're living in sin and they need to be recovered. You know that sin leads to death. And your love for them implies that it is your duty with regard to faithfulness to try to try to recover them, to try to bring them back. Now, James doesn't tell us how. We have to go to other portions of Scripture. However, in the immediate context, he certainly has been burdened about the subject of prayer, hasn't he? And he's even talked about Christians confessing their sins to one another and praying for one another. Surely prayer is a part of it. But it's more than prayer often, usually. Usually it is a going to the person in the spirit of what Paul says in Galatians 6, in a spirit of meekness and gentleness, considering ourselves lest we also be tempted to restore such a one in, a, in that spirit of meekness and gentleness and love. It's critical how we do this. But at some point, dear brothers and sisters, sooner or later we have to go. We have to go to that person. It takes so much courage. It takes love. It takes a love that rules over self-love. Well, I'm, he's going to get mad at me. She's going to get mad at me. She's going to think, I think I'm holier than thou. And the devil will give you a thousand reasons not to go. But at the end of the day, you have to say, I love her soul. I love his soul so much. I think he's wandering from the truth. I think I can see it in her, in her lifestyle. I can see it in her attitude. I can see it in her dress. I can hear it in her talk. I've got to talk to him. I've got to talk to her. And you've prayed until it's time to quit praying 
and go. And you go to that person, you say, brother, sister, I love you. And I have so many sins and I need your help. But right now I'm burdened for you. I feel like you're wandering from the truth. For one thing, I don't see you sitting under the truth the way you used to sit under the truth. I don't see you living by the truth the way you used to live by the truth. I'm afraid you're falling through the cracks. I love you. You, you, can't, you can't keep doing this. What's happening? How can I help you? Can we pray? You must come back. And sometimes it may literally mean come back to the church. Because that can be one of the evidences of wandering from the truth. No love for the people of God. No love for the Word of God. No love for the means of grace. We've got to recover. That's the duty. That's the faithful duty. That's the loving duty. And what is our, um, what is our hope? What is our goal? What is our incentive? Is, is there any reward built into this? Oh, it's a tremendous reward. Tremendous reward. Look, you may be used of God to bring Him back. You may be used of God to bring her back. And listen, this is what James says. You need to be fully aware of this. If God uses you to bring a sinner back from his or her wandering, guess what? You will have saved a soul from death. This is, this is bigger than praying for someone to be healed and seeing a miracle take place. This is bigger because they're still going to die again. But if you become the means of someone's true conversion... Your bringing a soul back amounts to the saving of a soul from death. And it amounts to the covering of a multitude of sins. What a beautiful biblical expression. I'm going to save you the time, but I'll tell you the text. Listen, two beautiful texts describing genuine forgiveness. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 32, verse 1. Listen to this. You forgave, Lord, the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. <laughs> what a, forgiveness and covering put together. Now, there's a sense in which we cover a multitude of sins when people come and tell us and we say, look, I love you. I forgive you. I'm not going to tell anybody what happened. And look, I love you so much. Let me put this blanket of love and forgiveness over all of that. But that's not what David is talking about in Psalm 32.1 and in Psalm 85.2. He's talking about the forgiveness that comes from God. Elsewhere, described beautifully as the bearing of our sins in the depths of the sea. The separating them as far as the east is from the west. The not remembering them any longer. Here in Psalm 32 and 85, he describes forgiveness as the covering. And what a beautiful word because you see, that's what atonement, that's what the atonement of Jesus Christ accomplished. A covering for our sins. A covering through which the sin can no longer appear. It's a perfect covering. There are no flaws. There are no little holes in the garment that you can see through. So, oh, there, I still see it. No. It's a perfect covering. And James is saying to us, when out of love we go to this professed Christian who has wandered from the truth 
and we plead with them and the Lord blesses our efforts. We have saved a sinner from spiritual death and we have become the instrument or the instrument of their salvation. Of course, God saves. This is kind of like the passage last week when I said the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful. And I said to you, you, we would say, no, James, not the prayer. It's God that's powerful. And James says, of course, it is God where the power comes from. But I'm telling you, but I want to emphasize the power of the instrumentality. And in this passage, James is emphasizing the power of the instrumentality. People can be so used of God that in a sense, God is willing to say, you saved a soul from death and you covered a multitude of sins. And it is that reward that, that so inspires us to do this great work. Listen to the words of Thomas Scott. He says, In the use of all proper means, every one of us should seek the conversion of sinners as well as the recovery of such as have wandered from the way of truth and holiness. Considering that if in one instance only, okay, you live your whole life and you've only been used of God to recover one person. That's just what he wants you to imagine. <clears throat> If in one instant, instance only, during the course of our whole lives, and after 10,000 disappointments, we were made successful instruments in saving one soul from death and in covering a multitude of sins, the event is of so vast importance that it will abundantly repay all our toil, anxiety, and disappointment being far greater than the preservation of the lives of multitudes or promoting the temporary prosperity of whole nations. Let us then, in our several stations, keep these things in mind and spare no pains and shrink from no self-denial and be wearied out by no ill success in so charitable a service. And the event will prove that our labor was not in vain in the Lord. Has God ever used you to recover a soul from death through evangelism or through this faithful ministry. If he has, you are a blessed person indeed. And now I must conclude. Uh, We've seen that James assumes truth. We've seen that Christians are capable of wandering from the truth and, and, and whether they're genuine or merely professing Christians. We've seen that wandering from the truth is sinful. We've seen that wandering from the truth is dangerous. We've seen that such wanderings are sometimes successfully uh, turned about. The wanderers recovered and brought back. And we've seen that such a recovery is brought about through the instrumentality of caring brothers and sisters. And now, having seen those things, I leave you with these three applications. And I'm going to read this because it's... It's a little bit long, but I think you grasp it. Listen, a biblical church should be a caring community made up of loving individuals who simply will not let a wayward brother or sister wander away or fall through the cracks without making a genuine, wholehearted, sustained, persevering, prayerful effort to recover that wanderer. You know, do you know what I just said? I just said a true church is made up of people who love one another so much that they say, I can't let you do this. I'm praying for you. I'm coming to you. And isn't it sad that in so many churches people fall into sin and 
And not only do the pastors not have enough guts to go to the people living openly in sin. And, and we're quick to criticize that, and rightfully so. But listen, dear people, I don't think this passage says anything about pastors. I'm trying to find it in James 5. I don't, I don't see where it says, and if a pastor goes. It says, if anyone goes. And I want you to feel the pressure. And I want to ask you, do you ever look over this congregation with a question, are there any falling through the cracks? Is there anybody in our assembly wandering for the truth? I haven't been seeing so-and-so lately. In fact, when I did see so-and-so, I saw something that was rather discouraging. How burdened are you? I'm saying to you that a biblical church is a caring community made up of loving individuals who simply will not let a wayward brother or sister wander away without making every effort to recover them. Are your eyes open, dear brothers and sisters? Do you ever think through this congregation or do you believe that such a concern is for your pastors only? We do have that concern. And we have recently sought in our elders' meetings together to identify people that we have put on what we're calling a care list. We're, we're concerned for them. We're praying for them. We're going to them. We're asking brethren who have a good relationship with them to go. But that's, that's what we're doing. And James is talking about what you're supposed to be doing. Number two, as weak and fallible believers with remaining sin, we need one another. Did you see the one another? Okay, Two times, my brothers, if any, one among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The exact expression is not there, but the idea of one going to another clearly emerges. And I'm submitting to you that we, like the professed Christians of James' day, need one another. And we need one another because of remaining sin. And I want to remind you that God never designed the believer to persevere all alone. That's part of the purpose of the church. It's part of the purpose of the body. We're not called to persevere all alone apart from the body. That means that if someone lovingly comes after me because I'm giving evidence of having wandered away from the truth, I must not Respond defensively in pride. See, there's two things. Haven't I been emphasizing that we need to go? We need to go. We do need to go. Sometimes we need somebody to come. And when they come, that's when we have to say, no, I'm not going to let my pride rise up. I'm not going to be defensive. I'm going to say, thank you. Thank you for loving me so much. I'm so ashamed. I'm so encouraged that you love me. I didn't think anybody loved me. The devil's been lying to me. Thank you for coming. That's the attitude we need to have. And we can pray even now, God, if that day should ever be necessary, grant me that grace when I need it. But we need one another. And finally, this passage should be sobering, if not fearful, for all of us. Especially 
anyone within our church who may find himself or herself wandering from the truth. Why is it sobering, perhaps even fearful? Because I've already shown you the danger of it. Such a person should realize that he's headed toward eternal death. That's what James says. He says bringing back such a person saves a soul from death. So if you are such a person, what are you heading for? What did James 1, 13-15 say? It said, And sin, when it is mature, produces death. And that's why this is so sobering. And it should be sobering for every one of us in the sense that we say, God, I know enough about my own heart that I believe that I could be such a person. And if you don't believe you could be such a person, you will find no support from the Bible for not believing that because our Bibles say, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. All of us need to say, God, I am so weak. There is so much remaining sin in me. I could wander from the truth. Don't let me wander from the truth. But if I should ever wander from the truth, send someone who loves me enough to bring me back and make me humble when they come. So it's a sobering passage, if not fearful, because of the consequences that are at stake. And dear people, isn't it beautiful that there is hope for the recovering of a backslider? Doesn't this passage offer hope? Hope! It isn't just all for fear. It's a sober. Yes, it's sobering. Wow, that can happen. Yeah, that can happen. Wow, that's really sobering. Is there any hope? Oh, yeah. He, he says that God uses people to recover other people. And he says that when they're recovered, they're saved from death. And, in fact, they experience the covering of a multitude of sins. And that brings us to Christ. And the reason why there is hope for all wandering persons and the reason why a multitude of sins can be covered is because Christ provided a covering. There is a covering. And it is in His atonement, in His shed blood. And the reason why a soul can be saved from death is because Christ took our death. He died in the place of sinners so that we wouldn't have to experience the second death. This passage is also about hope. And if there's anyone listening to me today that knows in the depths of your conscience and heart that you're wandering, you know you're wandering. It's, it's hard for me to believe that we don't have some, perhaps even some serious wandering going on here. 350 people Did you hear what I said in the sermon about how subtle it is? He's just wandering. Just wandering. And you've gotten way off the beaten path of truth. I hope you heard the danger. You're heading for death. The ultimate, the ultimate proof that you are a true child of God will be in your recovery and your perseverance. You should be fearful, but you should be hopeful. Hopeful. There is recovery. You can come back. 
when you come back, you confess and repent of your sins. Your soul is saved. And you have a covering for the multitude of sins in the blood of Christ. Come back. If you're a professing Christian and you've wandered off, come back. And if you're not a Christian at all, this is all for you too. You need to be converted. You're wandering at least from the truth intellectually. You've been raised in this church. You know so much truth that it's going to make hell a million times hotter for you than multitudes of people. You've wandered from the truth in a different way. You never embraced it. You never loved it. You never did it. You never obeyed it. Please, come back. There's a covering. There's a covering in the blood of Christ for the multitude of your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this letter. We know that even in 33 studies of this letter, we've really just scratched the surface of of the practicality of its teaching. Help us to live by it. Help us to do the truth. Understand the truth. Believe the truth. Embrace the truth. Love the truth. Do the truth. And thereby prove that we have a saving faith. Lord, help us to care for one another. Help us to be thinking through this assembly. And help us to lovingly go after anyone that we have the least concern for. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of assembly that cares enough to not let people go to hell in a handbasket. May we be more and more characterized by that kind of love. And Lord, be gracious to the unconverted here today. Save their souls from death. And may they find a covering for the multitude of their sins in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.